You play ball like a girl! Aren't you a girl? Gee, good eye. I'm a girl. That doesn't mean I have to wear a skirt. It's not a girl thing. It's not a boy thing. It's a skills thing. When I first started playing tennis, women weren't really encouraged to play sports, let alone excel in sports. Just want to play ball. Welcome to Ball Like a Girl. And here's your host, Olivia Stacy. Hey everyone, we're back with a new edition of Ball Like a Girl presented by Heavy.com. Thanks for joining us today. Appreciate all of you who reached out after last week's episode featuring NBC Sports' Michelle Tafoya. I was so happy you all seemed to enjoy it as much as I did. And if you missed it, you need to give it a listen. I know I say that every week, but I genuinely mean that. Michelle will be sidelining the Super Bowl this Sunday, so we asked her to preview the big game, and she also gave us a behind-the-scenes look inside Sunday Night Football and what it's like to work with a primetime broadcast of that magnitude. So uh, she just had a, a lot of interesting insight. Um, she even gets into her thoughts on the decline in NFL TV ratings. So a lot of interesting stuff in our last episode. And this week we have another rock star, Steph Lowe. She is a sports writer for the Seattle Times and president of the Football Writers Association of America. She's believed to be the first woman to hold this role. We're still fact-checking that. But um, either way, this conversation is pretty cool because while we discuss Steph's journey in sports media, we also delve into topics where sports, culture, and social issues intersect. In this episode, Steph discusses her decision to move from Singapore to the United States to pursue a sports journalism career, how her sexuality has affected her work in the industry, and if the college football playoff should expand. She shares her thoughts on that topic of debate as well. Um, oh, and we also realized we have a mutual obsession with a league of their own. So without further ado, here is Steph Lowe. Hey, Steph, great to have you on. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I am good. So it, it goes without being said that this weekend is a pretty big weekend for football fans. There's a, a little thing happening called the Super Bowl. Um, so, Steph, I want to start off by asking you, who who's your pick? Who do you have winning? Oh, boy. It's everyone's hated pick, but I think the <laughs> Patriots are going to come up with another Super Bowl. I think, you know, I mean, if you look at Tom Brady and this franchise, it's just, they've become like a modern sports dynasty, and I think they're going to come up and beat the Eagles and claim yet another Super Bowl ring. Yeah, I I agree with you on that one, and it's funny because when you ask, you know, random people who they're picking or who they want to win, if they're not from Boston or they don't really have a connection to the Patriots, they don't want the Patriots to win. I feel like it's <laughs> right now a very unpopular choice. Um, yeah, I feel like the Patriots for the NFL are kind of like Alabama yep. in college football in that everyone outside the state that they play in, are, you know, always goes into every championship sort of rooting against them. Like with the national championship, I was there in Atlanta and watching as Georgia sort of came out strong, had this early lead going into halftime. And I know all these fans all over the country were like, yeah, someone's going to take Alabama down. But then Alabama does what Alabama does. And I think Patriots are probably going to do the same thing. We saw it last mm. in the Super Bowl against Atlanta, too. 
Yeah, I feel like it's been when you look at college football and you look at last year's Super Bowl and even some of the playoff games in the NFL, it's like been a year of comebacks of like un you know, unexpected comebacks with teams. And so it certainly makes it interesting. But you you brought up college football, which I know is a passion of yours, clearly. And I want to touch upon just, it seemed like more debate uh, this season over the college football playoff committee selections and rankings, in my opinion. I don't know if you felt the same way, but I saw a lot more uh, people debating it this year. Overall, what are your thoughts on the fairness of the process? So you're asking me if UCF should actually be the national championship <laughs> the way they've declared themselves to be? I mean, um, you know I'm based in Florida, so that's all we've heard. That's all we've heard in Florida. <laughs> hey, you know what? Props to them for kind of mounting that campaign. I mean, you really you can't really argue with 13-0. and They're the only team in the country that went undefeated. But at the same time, I mean, if you look at the strength of schedule, right, they didn't play some of the teams early on that, that let's right. say, Alabama or – Clemson or Ohio State did play so well yes there's a certain merit to saying hey we're the only team in the in the FBS that finished 13 and 0 you also have to kind of look at what they did early in the season and yes you can't actually fault them for their schedule because they can only play who Mm -hmm. they are scheduled to play but at the same time I think that you know that in itself to me opens the conversation that we should have an extended playoff. And I think that would be cool to see a playoff of eight teams even. Yeah, that it was my next question for you, and, and you just answered it. Um, so when do you think the time is right for a playoff expansion? Well, if it were up to me, I'd say let's do it, right? Yeah. I mean, I think everyone in the country would, everyone in the country would love to see a college football playoff with eight teams, you know, maybe one automatic bid to each Power Five conference champion, mm-hmm. and then sort of three at large. In fact, I know the football coach that I cover most frequently, Mike Leach of Washington State, has long been a champion of like a 16-team college football playoff. Yeah. I agree with you. And and, and there's, there's some people who, you know, it, it's such a passionate issue, but I, I find that most fans want it. Um, so I'm kind of like, what's the holdup? Why can't we just, you know, roll this out for next season? Um, but on the other side, is there any part of the argument for people who don't think that it's time for an expansion? Do you, do you relate to any part of the, the opposing side of you? I mean, I can see why the people who are opposed to expansion are kind of holding on to their argument. You know, the fact that if you look at the last few years, the committee looks like it's gotten, it's gotten its picks right Mm -hmm. since it started picking the playoff. But at the same time, what is there, you know, what's to hurt a larger playoff bracket? I mean, I think you could easily sort of rejigger things to ensure that, you know, you don't have kids playing too many games, but at the same time, also having the the bracket and the playoff that most of the country wants. Right. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And and you were recently named the president of the Football Writers Association of America. You are the first woman to hold this role. Is, is that correct? I think there might have been one before me, but we're trying to look that up. Okay, because so. I tried to do research, and from my research, it looks like you're the first woman, but I didn't want to speak out of turn. Uh, but either way, it, it's a huge uh, role, and congratulations, Steph. Can you give us a behind-the-scenes look inside what you do? What does that position entail? 
So I'm the head of the Football Writers Association of America, which is sort of the an, an organization of college football writers, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the foot, there's a pro football writers association right. that all the NFL writers join. And this one, I mean, a lot of it is really just sort of, um, for one thing, we pick some All-American lists. We pick um, the Nagurski Trophy and the Outland Trophy. Um, but also, I think it's important to have a body like that because, for instance, if media members have any issues in dealing with their football coaches, uh, the football coaches that they cover, this is sort of a governing body. I mean, an unofficial governing body or really just where they can kind of appeal to us to talk to schools on their behalf or to kind of ensure that media members are being able to do their jobs, to make it easier for media members to do their jobs. So, you know, I mean, college football coaches have – different rules all over the country in terms of media access and in instances where for instance a coach decides to you know say that media members can't talk to any of the players parents or anything like that that's where we can step in and try and help ensure that you know while the coach is fully entitled to kind of make his own rules they also have to understand that the media is here to do a job you know it's one thing to be involved in the media side of things but when you're in a a role such as this, you're leading an association of writers and working with different uh, media members and, and and advocating on different issues, I'm sure that gives you a different perspective, I would imagine, than a sports writing perspective. Oh, sure. I mean, you get, for one thing, you know, as a beat writer covering a specific college team, a lot of the times you really focus most of your attention on the team that you cover and the conference that you cover. Um, But a role like this has sort of given me a broader perspective of college football. You know, I interact with a lot of different people from different conferences. And so I think that has given me kind of like a national viewpoint of college football. And, you know, being on the committee that helps to elect some All-Americans, like that's also pretty cool because you get to kind of dig into some of the numbers and really figure out who the best of the best who play this game are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's pretty cool. Now, you currently work at the Seattle Times, but while working at the San Diego Union-Tribune, your focus was on sports features. So you were often writing stories that highlighted people, issues, trends in sports, that's an interesting beat because that's where we see sports, politics, and social issues often collide. Uh, Were there any reoccurring issues or trends that you found yourself reporting on in that role? Um, One story that I did in that role that I thought was pretty powerful and that I think is still sort of being discussed today is just the role of marijuana and sports and you know how there's this constant conflicting battle between some athletes especially in football who say hey um marijuana is a is a healthier way for us to deal with our recurring pain from our injuries over the course of our careers than opioids and why is it that it is still considered such a bad thing why is it where is there such a stigma around the use of marijuana in sports if this is according to them and some and some experts less um, less habit forming than opioids mm-hmm. and less harmful in the long run so reporting that story was really eye-opening for me because I hadn't done a lot of um, research into the issue before that. And talking to some of these guys really did make me wonder, you know, why is it that marijuana has such a stigma around it, especially because when you look at 
just at the laws nationally, there are some states now that have legalized marijuana and marijuana use, but it is still very much sort of a taboo in most mm-hmm. sports. Right. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting topic. Now, along those lines, it seems we're seeing more of an intersection of sports, politics, and social issues. Do you feel that's a good or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing. I think the thing about sports is that it's about people first, right? Like, mm-hmm. we write, yes, we're covering these games and we're covering these leagues, but above all, we're writing about athletes and coaches and People are interested in these people because of of their celebrity, but they also most of the time want to know what makes these people tick. And so I think that in itself lends a human lens to sports through which you can examine a whole bunch of other issues. You know, you can you can kind of find a sports angle for pretty much any any story that you can look at today, like pick anything off the newspaper's website and you could probably think of a sports angle to it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. And along those lines, you recently covered a tragic story that I want to touch upon. Uh, Washington State quarterback Tyler Holinsky was found dead in his apartment, and it has been deemed a suicide. I know you've been doing a lot of coverage on this. You wrote an article about how his teammate, Luke Falk, is advocating for more dialogue around suicide and suicide prevention uh, tell me a little bit more about that, and how do you think colleges can do a better job of raising this type of awareness in their athletic programs? Because this is, you know, this is a story that we hear often of well-accomplished athletes who are struggling with this. Yeah, I think Luke said it best this week. You know, he he made some very astute comments at the Senior Bowl in Mobile during media day this week, where he said, "I think." we as men suppress our emotions and feel like we can't express what's really going on and how we feel because, you know, football has this sort of persona as like a tough guy sport. You have to be tough. You have to kind of like go out there and be this gladiator, right? That's, Mm -hmm. that's what people expect of these guys. So a lot of the times they feel like they can't talk about their feelings and that then they can't show that sort of vulnerability. And I think, you know, that kind of, that kind of contributes to, to issues like what you see happen with Tyler Helensky, who clearly, you know, when, when you look at this kid, in all my dealings with Tyler Helensky, he was the cheeriest, most outgoing, just sort of happy-go-lucky kid on the team. And no one, not his parents, not his coaches, not his teammates, no one saw this coming. So what must, what kind of demons must this kid have been dealing with that drove him to take his own life? There were clearly issues under the surface that he couldn't he felt like he couldn't talk about and you know those ultimately ended up leading to this sort of sad tragic state of affairs yeah it's it's really a sad story Uh, what advice can you give to other sports reporters when covering such a sensitive topic such as that one i think you have to be a person first and a reporter second you have to understand that these are people's emotions that you're dealing with and that people are grieving. And so it's definitely sort of a fine line to kind of toe, you know, you're hoping, you're hoping to be able to like talk to some people and do your job as a reporter and report on this really sad event that a lot of fans are, are very interested in just because of the sheer nature of how shocking it was. But at the same time, you should, be respectful of the fact that, you know, his, his parents and his teammates and a lot of people around this program are grieving for his loss. Mm -hmm. And so that it's definitely a a really 
tough thing to navigate. Um, you kind of have to ask yourself too, you know, if I were in their shoes, what, what would, what would I find okay? And what would I find overly invasive? Mm, yeah, yeah, definitely ask, ask yourself that question. That's a good piece of advice. And you have a really interesting journey in your sports career and in your life, really. You were born and raised in Singapore. You grew up wanting to be a sports reporter, which I find interesting and really fascinating uh, because it's not a culture focused on sports. So where did your affinity and this love for sports begin? Yeah, when I look back on it, I think I think my love for sports really began with a lot of American sports movies. I grew I grew up watching the Money Ducks movies. A League of Their Own was my <laughs> oh, favorite movie in the whole it's world. My like, favorite movie ever. <laughs> yes, and like I think those two specifically, the, the Muddy the Muddy Ducks franchise and A League of Their Own, really kind of crafted my my idea of sports and sports in america you know it seemed like this this great nation where even little girls could go up to play pro baseball right i mean that's still Mm -hmm. not quite the case but when i was growing up in singapore where when i was growing up i likened the sports opportunities for girls to a little bit like the pre-title nine era in in the united states in that you know there were not a lot of varsity sports teams for girls at most public schools Mm -hmm. um my public school that i went to girls could pick from i think it was field hockey gymnastics and netball which is this british sport that no one plays here Mm. um and that's what i ended up playing but you know for example there was a soccer team but that was only for guys there was a basketball team but that was only for guys so like i grew up in that landscape and to me just watching these watching kids like in those Mighty Ducks movies playing sports especially these girls like like the goalie Julie the Cat <laughs> Gaffney she was one of my favorites right yeah watching all these movies kind of formed my opinion of what it might be like to sort of be in this sports rich culture in America so I grew up watching those and I grew up loving loving to read I read everything I read voraciously and I that from that love of reading I formed the love of writing and so to me it just kind of made sense to combine the two my love for sports and my love for writing and try to make a living as a sports writer and of course at that point then you know the logical conclusion was if I want to be a sports writer I might as well do it in the only country in the world where sports is this big an industry Mm. so you decided to move to the U.S. for college in pursuit of that dream That's a huge transition. I mean, it seems like it was a clear choice for you because you knew the path that you wanted to go on. But I'm sure it you also had some difficulty in that decision because it is a big move. Yeah. And I'll tell you this. So I picked this. I ended up going to the University of Oregon and I picked that off a map sight unseen influenced by several things. Number one. Um, the year that I was looking at colleges was the year that Joey Harrington was the quarterback at Oregon, and the school had mounted this huge Heisman campaign for him where they threw his, this giant um, <clears throat> picture of him onto, a, I think, a building in Times Square. <laughs> wow. And so, you know, like I was researching this. This was sort of in the infancy of the Internet where there were some things like that online. Mm-hmm. Um, so the I saw that and I thought that's pretty cool that that seems like that would be a fun a fun school to be at if, if they're putting this much effort into trying to kind of pump up their quarterback and their Heisman candidate right mm-hmm. and so I looked at that um, 
there's such stupid sort of random reasons that I picked this school <laughs> that I, I'm just shocked that it worked out. So, like, I told you about my, my fascination with the Mighty Ducks. Right. Um, well, Oregon's mascot is the duck. Uh, yes, that and, is true. <laughs> yes, and my favorite color growing up was green. And their school colors are green and yellow. So that was the fact that they had a really good journalism school. And I kind of wanted to be on the West Coast because in the grand scheme of things, the West Coast was much more familiar to me than the East Coast because my family had vacation in Southern California. So you put that all together and I decided this is, you know, this sounds like the perfect place for me to go. I love that. I love those reasons. I think they're solid choices. I mean, you got to have a mascot that you can identify with (laughs) at your school. Exactly. and yeah, that's that's really, gosh, such a cool story. Um, obviously, there's a lot of cultural differences between Singapore and the United States. So what was maybe like some of your initial impressions of life in America? You know, when you when you first came over and went to college, what was something that just really stood out to you that personified uh, what this next chapter of your life would look like? Yeah, looking back, it's funny to kind of pick out the things that really did make an impact and the things that I kind of just seamlessly transitioned into. I I remember getting off the plane at the airport in Eugene, Oregon with my mother and sort of just driving through, you know, the side of town that the airport was on. And, you know, as far as most cities go, airports are usually on the outskirts of town because they need these giant runways for the planes to be able to take off, right? So they're not going to be sort of in the center of the city. But I remember sort of driving in this cab from the airport to campus and thinking, what have I done? You know, this this place is so it's so small. It's so it's so much more quiet than this metropolitan city of four million people that I grew up in that I'm used to. And I was just thinking, what have I done? Like, why did I pick this random little town off a map? Why didn't I go to a bigger city? And so I think that adjustment from having grown up in this big urban city to kind of adapting to life in a small sleepier college town was a big one for me because I had to kind of wrap my head around the fact that on Sunday businesses close at five and that's just kind of how it is it was Mm -hmm. little things like that and the fact that when I was growing up I you know I'm about I'm about five seven um like 155 pounds right Mm -hmm. and when I was growing up I was considered huge in Singapore (laughs) so yeah, like all the, like if I if I went out to buy clothing, I was like an extra large in shirts. I was like a size twelve in pants, and so I remember going shopping with my mother within the first couple of days of us getting here and trying on clothes and realizing that suddenly I was not like large anymore. You know, I'm right. a size six <laughs> in pants here. So that was that was novel too. That was sort of an interesting thing for me to process. Like, oh, I'm kind of average here. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it was little things like that, and just sort of, I felt, but for the most part, I felt like I was sort of finally living my dream, you know, I I made it to the country that I always felt this strange affinity for, and I was on this campus that was very pro-sports, and and surrounded by a lot of kids who really kind of shared my passion, like, I remember going to my first Ducks game, and it was the most surreal experience ever, because... Until that point, I'd only ever watched American football on TV. Mm. Yeah, that would be, I'm sure, a very, gosh, this eye-opening experience to finally be there in person and to watch it. And, you know, along those cultural differences, 
You've been open about your sexuality as a gay woman, and I'm curious to know how that really impacted your transition to America and and how that has played a role, if any, in your career. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. I, if I look back, I like I told you, I had this huge obsession with A League of Their Own, and now, yeah. now I wonder, you know, did I want to date Dottie Henson or did I want to be Dottie Henson? I still don't know, but... Um, I think that's where that's where my choice of college really sort of helped everything gel because I I was not out when I came to college. Um, I think I'd had an experience with a girl in Singapore and then promptly like ran back into the closet and shut the door and threw away the key. <laughs> and being at a place like Oregon on a campus like that with such liberal mores really sort of helped me become comfortable with myself. So I came out my, I would say, my toward the end of my junior year of college. That's when I think I was okay with being publicly gay. Um, but even then, it sort of took a couple years for me to figure out if I could be open with my sexuality in a, in a professional setting. Because, I mean, as you know, football, for one thing, which is the first sport that I that I covered as a job and is really the the sport that I focused my career on. Football is not the most liberal of demographics, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And so my first job out of school was in Morgantown, West Virginia. And I remember going into it wondering, how is this going to go? Because, you know, I'd finally gotten to a point where I was comfortable with my sexuality and comfortable being gay. And I was going to a red state. And it took me... It took me a while to kind of feel it out over there to determine if I was okay with people knowing that I was gay. I mean, I think in in hindsight that I wouldn't have had a problem because that was a college town and there was a gay community and I found the gay community um, and was, you know, that was a big part of my early 20s. But I think I was a little bit afraid to be out as a report as a sports reporter early in my career and that has definitely evolved because in, in my last couple of stops have come in San Diego and Seattle so they're bigger cities with more progressive audiences and I have it's been it's made it much easier for me to be myself yeah well to delve into a, a little deeper into some of those points uh, thank you for sharing all of that you know, I, I know there's so many people who look up to you, um, you know, and, and admire your openness and, and what you've accomplished in the field. But how far do you think the world of football has come as far as diversity and inclusion in just your time and, and you know, in first coming onto the scene as a student to now? I think, the, you know, when Michael Sam came out, the, the football player from right. Missouri. I, mm-hmm. I want to say that was probably in 2014 or 15. Yeah. I think that was a huge, huge step for the football world because it was the first time that a player hoping to get drafted, you know, could acknowledge that he was gay and not feel like he had anything, he had he, not feel like he had to hide himself mm-hmm. because he wanted to further his career. Now, right. whether or not Michael Sam's, current status as not as as not a national football league player whether or not that has to do with his sexuality is still up for debate i think some people would say yes and some people would say no he just wasn't good enough you know but that was a huge watershed moment and i think the next one will be when you have an nfl player who's currently on a roster who's established as you know uh, a productive contributing member of a team 
is able to come out and say, yeah, I'm gay and I and I'm okay with that. And no one should have to fear for their livelihood because of their sexuality. And I think we have yet to get to that point. I think the NFL in particular is governed by a socially conservative base. If you look at just their ownership, it's it's a lot of, you know, that old boys club of established white men. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think adding some diversity to that would be helpful. I know, I think it's Steph Curry has expressed interest Mm -hmm. in buying the Panthers, which I think would be very interesting. And so I think where football itself is progressing, I know I'm out to the football team that I cover, you know, all the parents of the kids that I cover know I'm gay. I talk Mm -hmm. about my wife. Sometimes the coaches know that I'm gay and, and I have never had a problem with that. But that said, I'm on the West Coast. Yeah. And I feel like that might be a little bit different in the Bible Belt. Well, it's great that you've had that experience, and I'm I'm happy to hear that you have, you know, had that that kind of reaction. Um, And you have become a mentor and advocate for LGBT youth. In what ways have you been able to do this, particularly through sports? I think just by being myself, I think it's – it's, I think it's important for LGBT youth to see people who are gay, who are lesbian, bisexual, transgender, just in everyday roles in society. You know, I think that is tremendously important for someone who's coming to grips with their sexuality and trying to trying to be okay with who they are. Because I knew that when I came out, and you know, society has evolved to the point where it is so much better now than it was 10, 15 years ago. But I know when I when I was sort of struggling with my sexuality, especially in Singapore, where it's not generally, it's, it's not generally as liberal of a population as it is here. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I couldn't really find sort of just people in the world, people in the media, people, just celebrities even, who were, who were gay, right? Like there were very few out gay celebrities out gay sort of public figures in the world 10 15 years ago mm-hmm. and so to me it when i was in the closet it always struck me you know like is this really me like i don't actually see a representation of myself in in the public sphere like am i actually gay like what are these feelings right i think yeah. it's important for kids to see that it's okay and you can you can live a perfectly normal life and be perfectly happy as an LGBT individual in today's society. Said, however, that there are still, like I pointed out earlier, bastions of, I guess, more conservative social mores where it can be dangerous for someone mm. to come out. Like I read a story, a horrific story the other day about these two girls in South Africa getting kidnapped and killed because they were lesbians. You oh know, this stuff still happens. We right. cannot, We cannot sort of we cannot look at the advances that we've made as a society in the United States and say, we're good. Like we're there. This stuff still happens. And until gay people have the exact same rights in every state in this country as heterosexual people, like our work is not done. Yeah. It's through continuing conversations such as the one that we're having here today that, you know, that, that needs to happen to continue that advancement. And now kind of switching gears here, um, you know, now challenges as a woman in sports, <laughs> because you you wrote a column about uh, some of the challenges that you faced. And I found it interesting because when I often talk to 
you know, other sports reporters, it comes in the form of comments, fans, people make in person to them or on social media. But in this column that you wrote, it was actually a group of colleagues who were degrading your work behind your back and for no other reason than being a woman. And that was shocking to me. And because that hasn't been my experience, and I, I certainly know what happens, but you know, you tend to think that the criticism comes from the outside, but to have it come from the inside must have been especially hurtful, but it seemed like it was also empowering for you. You use that as motivation. Absolutely. I think until that point, you know, I, my experience in sports media had been largely like yours, where I don't feel like my gender ever actually hindered me in doing my job. I don't feel like I was ever sort of, I guess, marginalized because I was a woman, mm-hmm. right? Right. And so I think that episode really sort of drove home to me the fact that there are still issues surrounding gender in sports and that there are still some people out there who don't regard women as fully qualified to talk about sports, who don't see women as, you know, fully qualified to write about sports and who don't think women should be in sports media or around sports at all. And yeah, so it did, you know, when, when I, I found out about this after the fact, it was much, it, it was later as I was leaving that I realized the full extent of why I'd been sort of so miserable in my job at this place and it really, in thinking back, as I kind of gained perspective through time, it really just angered me. The fact that, you know, nothing I did would have ever been good enough for these people because of the fact that I was a woman. That right. just pissed me off no end. <laughs> yeah, that made me pretty angry too. And you use that though. I love that you use that to prove them wrong. You know, it didn't. you didn't let it get you down. And I love that. You use that as, <laughs> just watch me. And But again, you see, like we've talked about how sports and society and sports and different issues in society sometimes intersect. I think it's the same thing. You know, I think when as women often it's not it's not just sports is not the only industry where women are marginalized and where there's still sort of some gender differences. Right. Yeah. And so I think that that's what women have to do to be able to fight for equal pay, equal opportunity in every industry. You just have to fight. So, Steph, in many ways, uh, 2017, it can be characterized in many different ways, but a lot of the year was about female empowerment, and it came through difficult stories that we had to hear and that we had to open our ears and minds to. And there were a lot that emerged from the sports landscape that I think, you know, like you said, it's certainly not the only industry that has been affected. Uh, But it seemed like when it hit the sports landscape, you know, these major networks, stories emerged from there, stories emerged from a lot of different places in sports. And I recently had a male colleague genuinely ask me, how can we as men, how can we do better by women in this industry? And, and maybe not even in just this industry, but overall, what would your response be to that? Right. Well, I mean, first off, I want to say that, you know, aside from my one bad experience throughout my career, I've had numerous, multiple experiences of male colleagues sort of lifting me up and helping me through my career. You know, some of my my biggest mentors in the business are men. Mm -hmm. And I think that really the, the simplest, best thing that you can do is judge your coworker based on the quality of their work and who they are as a person. It doesn't matter if they're a man or a woman. You want you want to judge somebody based on what they bring to the table, right? Mm-hmm. But additionally, I mean, I've had so many men come up to me and ask how 
how they can support women in sports. And I say by just by basically what you're just asking me now, just keeping an open mind to the idea that it's diversity is important because you get diverse opinions and diverse viewpoints and that informs reporting in ways that in in ways that you can't sort of just duplicate just from having one specific kind of person writing stories for every news outlet or reporting for every every television station right mm-hmm. i think i think men support women by helping to mentor them i think men support women by standing up for female colleagues if they see any sort of discrimination yes, occurring right and i think most of all you know men support women by just treating them as their equals you know i i agree i've had amazing male colleagues who have lifted me up and and to close the podcast um i like to ask this question when i can to guess because as you know the name of it is ball like a girl so when you hear that phrase what does it mean to you when i hear ball like a girl so the i guess the picture that comes to mind is again oh my god i've Reference this movie so many times in the last half hour. Look at their own when when Dottie Henson sort of drops into the split and catches yes. the ball with her hat. That's the picture that automatically comes to mind, right? I mean, it's really just be a badass, right? I ball love like that. A girl, be a badass. Do your do your best in everything you could possibly do because you want to show that you know you're an awesome human being, not not an awesome girl. Yes. Yeah, that's so true. I love that. (laughs) And I said that was my last question, but since you and I have a mutual obsession with a league of their own, it's a question that many people have debated. What do you think about the ending scene, Dottie, when she lets the ball, you know, fall from her mitt? Do you think it was purposeful or do you think it was... Dottie Vincent would never do that. She tried. It just was what it was. (laughs) My my biggest sort of like fangirl geek out moment, um, a few months ago, I think it was like when, maybe it was last, it was sometime in twenty seventeen. Uh, the Gina Davis Institute retweeted me, and oh I my gosh. Like, screenshotted that and <laughs> saved it. <laughs> that movie a... was seminal for me. You know, it was the first sort of, it was the first sort of glimpse I got into just these strong athletic women kind of just being badasses it was a hugely seminal moment in my life Uh, yeah I agree I actually the movie came on the other night and I it was it was really late and I was like I should go to bed I should not do this and I should not watch it but it just happened to be on tv and I never see it on tv really so I was thrilled and sure enough you know it rolled around to be a 1 a.m I just couldn't stop watching it it's such a good film and uh, it's it really is one of the best of all time but thank you for your interesting insight on the final scene but truly Steph I enjoyed this conversation and, you know, you just offered really great knowledge. And I think, um, you know, just sharing your story, there's so many ways that people out there can be inspired by you. Uh, So we really appreciate your time and hopefully we can have you back on soon. Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. And that's going to wrap up this week's episode of Ball Like a Girl. If you have thoughts on our podcast or suggestions for future episodes, topics that you think we should talk about or guests that you'd like us to have on, let us know by reaching out on social media or go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes. We're continually checking your reviews and the comments that you leave us. And 
always love hearing from you guys. Make sure to subscribe too on iTunes so you don't miss any future episodes. As always, thanks for listening. We appreciate you and we'll be back next week.